This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Ava Amson welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Eppendorf. Eppendorf is a biotech company which develops, produces and distributes systems for use in all spheres of life science. The company's broad range of high-quality products and systems is used by researchers worldwide to efficiently carry out their work. Today's presentation is titled Introduction to Liquid Handling for NGS Workflows and it has been prepared by Elisa Viering and Dr. Tim Schomarts from Eppendorf. Elisa joined Eppendorf in 2021 as a product marketing manager for automated liquid handling and PCR devices. She has previous experience as a global product manager for automated electrophoresis solutions and as a laboratory engineer contributing to quality control, whole genome sequencing and throughput increase by implementing liquid handling systems. Elisa obtained a master's degree in molecular biotechnology from Goethe University Frankfurt, focusing on developing methods to identify genetic variation in large populations of DNA samples using NGS platforms. Tim joined Eppendorf in 2016 as an application specialist for automated liquid handling, where he acquired a deep understanding of automating lab routines. He is now the global marketing manager for automated liquid handling and plates. Tim has a broad background in diverse workflows, ranging from molecular biology, cell and infection biology, immunology and biochemistry. He studied molecular life sciences in Germany and Singapore and obtained a PhD in virology from the University of Hamburg, focusing on viral cross-species infection. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, Elisa is unable to be with us today, so Tim will take us through the full presentation. As always, we will have a question and answer session afterwards, so please type any questions you have into the questions box which appears on the bottom of your screen, and I'll put them to Tim at the end. So now, over to you, Tim, for the presentation. Yeah, uh, welcome everyone also from my side and thank you very much for this kind introduction. Uh, as mentioned, I will guide you through this webinar alone today, a little bit different than planned, but uh, yeah, that's uh, the nature of those live events. So um, we will tackle four different uh, topics today. I will give you a very quick introduction to NGS. Um, then we will move over to uh, a trips, a tips and tricks parts, um, which is very valid uh, for a manual handling of NGS libraries. It's really the, the biggest part of the presentation. Um, I will then uh, present the uh, benefits of automating NGS protocols, um, and if there is enough time, I will quickly touch a few examples how NGS can be used. But let's jump right in and get started uh, with the introduction to NGS. So the question is a little bit, why was NGS getting more and more popular over the last years, over the last decades. And I think this is um, very nice depicted here uh, in this graphic coming from the NIH. And it basically boils down to the cost, right? So um, with the Human Genome Project in uh, uh, 2001, the cost for sequencing a genome was around uh, $10 million, so $10 million for a single genome. Um, and this cost 
um, slightly declined, and then there was a, 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 a sharp a sharp decline, um, and now the costs are falling rapidly. Uh, and um, this is actually uh, the costs per genome. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for that. It was a hundred, a hundred million dollars uh, per human genome in the beginning, um, and now uh, we we dropped to around about one thousand dollars for sequencing a human uh, genome. Um, and of course, this is a major driver why uh, next generation sequencing and different sequencing strategies are now implemented in labs all over the world. And why this is also now slowly but steadily moving into diagnostic purposes, uh, as well as even therapeutic purposes. So um, a short overview of the history of sequencing technologies. Uh, in 1977, the, um, the, the foundation was laid with the so-called Sanger method, Sanger sequencing, something which is still valid for today. I will take uh, a look at this uh, in a few slides. Um, then in 1981, the human uh, mitochondria was sequenced. And then in 1919, uh, the Human Genome Project started. Um, and you can see in between uh, there were, was the complete cell genome, uh, the complete eukaryotic genome. And then finally, uh, in, in, in 2001, the Human Genome Project was finished. So um, it took uh, almost or roughly 11 years to, to finish the sequencing project. Um, and then in 2005, um, the, the, the first new generation of sequencers came to the market. Um, and this then developed uh, into uh, the second generation of uh, uh, sequencers, like the genetic analyzers. Uh, and uh, we are now in a phase where we take a look at the uh, human microbiome project, and uh, we are also seeing so-called third-generation sequencing. I will talk about this in a minute. So if we compare the three most common sequencing technologies nowadays, um, we can see that uh, we have the so-called first-generation of sequencing, which is classical Sanger sequencing. Um, it's still used today. Um, the advantages is that it is pretty accurate. Um, it has a low cost if you have less than 20 amplicons, and it has a rather uh, fast turnaround time. The disadvantages are that it has very limited capacity, the costs are drastically increasing if you have more than 20 amplicons, and you have limited throughput. Then we have the so-called second or next generation sequencing, um, which is Illumina sequencing, for example. Uh, the advantages is that uh, it's easy to um, apply, uh, the costs are low, uh, you have a pretty high throughput. Uh, a few of the disadvantages are that the coverage and mapping is sometimes not ideal. The data interpretation is very challenging, so you need bioinformatics for that, and it's tough to detect structural uh, variants. And in order to tackle that last point, uh, we now have the third generation of sequencing, PacBio, as well as Nanopore. Their coverage and mapping is way better. It allows for de novo assembly, and you can easily detect structural variants. The disadvantage is that um, it is still not very accurate today. It's very costly, and the library preparation is very expensive. So, But what are the, the differences? So what is the, the underlying principle of the sequencing technology? So I think every one of you is probably familiar with Sanger sequencing, so um, very simplified uh, DNA is fragmented um, and is then uh, amplified in the presence of DDNTPs, uh, which leads to a 
um, yeah, chain disruption whenever this DNTP is incorporated. Uh, so that so that means that at the end um, you have basically fragments uh, which uh, with uh, with ending with different DD NTPs, uh, um, and those can be run uh, with an electrophoresis. Um, so they will be sorted by length, and you can detect the DD NTP, and this then gives you sort of a linear read, and it gives you uh, the sequence and. Uh, it's still widely used for routine applications, uh, but the sequencing capacities and the speed are very limited. And uh, second-generation sequencing, so-called NGS, is then built upon this. So in the beginning, there is still a fragmentation, but now those fragments are uh, uh, attached with adapters. There, there's an adapter ligation. And instead of having a, a linear um, gel, they are... Um, attached to an array. So we get a two-dimensional picture. And then we go through cyclic array sequencing, uh, and we can detect all of those different points at the same time during different cycles. Uh, and that allows of more than 1 million reads per array. So uh, a massive increase in the number of reads that you get. So in a very simplified way, you start with the library preparation, then you go through clonal amplification, and in the end, you have the actual sequencing. But especially with the second generation of sequencing, so-called NGS, there are a lot of different flavors. So library preparation very much depends on what you want to look at. So there is everything from exome sequencing down to single cell sequencing, clonal amplification. There are, there are two Main differences it can be bridge PCR or emulgent PCR. And then for the sequencing itself, there are several um, systems out there. Most common is SBS um, sequencing by, by, by synthesis from Illumina or the ion semiconductor by live technology. So these are the most common techniques that are used nowadays. Very quickly touching third generation sequencing. Um, yeah, so-called... Uh, maybe next next generation sequencing. So there are two different um, techniques. Uh, one is the PAC biosystem. Um, this is, uh, this is based on the uh, circularization of uh, rather long fragments uh, up to 100 kilobases. Um, and with a zero mode waveguide, so that's um, a nanostructure uh, and the help of fluorescent dyes, uh, this system can then have very long reads and sequence very long reads. So that's a very elaborate technique. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. There are brilliant webinars from, from Pacific Bioscience, which you can watch if you are more interested. Um, same holds true for Oxford Nanopore. That's actually a technique that doesn't use any fluorescent dyes. So you can work with even longer fragments up to two a megabase pairs attached to a, a motor protein and uh, to an adapter, and they are then guided through the so-called nanopore via the motor protein. Uh, and based on the electrical current readout, which you can see here, you can then calculate back uh, on the base pairing um, of the sequence. So, but currently this third generation sequencing, there is no widespread use. Um, it's very specific applications that demand this. Um, it allows for very long reads, um, but it's way less standardized uh, as compared to second-generation sequencing. And that is the reason why during this presentation, uh, I want to focus on the so-called next-generation sequencing, 
second generation sequencing um, because they it comes in so many different flavors. It can be applied for so many uh, different applications and so many different scientific questions. And um, the, the sequencing systems itself, they range from a very small system uh, like the ISIC here. So these are all Illumina systems up to um, a very big system. Um, the, um, the biggest sequencer from Illumina those days, the NovaSeq. So you can very much have a sequencer depending uh, on your specific sequencing needs. Okay, so that's the background. Um, now I want to move into tips and tricks, um, mainly for NGS library preparation. Um, and in order to get started, uh, let's take a look at a very simplified um, NGS library preparation workflow. So it all starts with the primary sample. Um, it can be blood, it can be saliva, it can be any type of tissue or microorganisms. Uh, and you then have to extract the nucleic acids that you want to analyze, can be DNA, can also be RNA via nucleic acid extraction. So, um, and that is a story on its own, so to speak. So if you um, follow this link here, or um, if you scan this QR code, you will be directed uh, to a different webinar, um, which is focused on nucleic acid extraction. It would be too much if we covered this topic here as well, um, but maybe uh, as a rule of thumb, so make sure that you have a proper nucleic acid extraction, that um, this is an optimized protocol, uh, because also for NGS, um, there is the rule of garbage in, garbage out. So the better the input, the better your final result. Uh, what I can always recommend um, is a, a quality control directly after nucleic acid extraction. Um, first, a quantification to determine the exact input to move into your NGS library preparation and also a qualification to how good are my extracted nucleic acids. This allows for a good troubleshoot and optimization protocol. And um, you can adapt the fragmentation if needed. I will come to that in a minute. And then after this QC, we move into the actual NGS library preparation. Um, and this has been, can be split up into four major parts. We have fragmentation, we have end repair and A-tailing, followed by adapter ligation. And then we move into the PCR amplification uh, before we continue further to the actual normalization and sequencing. Uh, I will guide you through each and every one of those steps. So let's start with the fragmentation. So the idea of the fragmentation is to break down your long nucleic acid strands um, into fragments of a specific length. So typically we're talking about 150 base pairs. Um, and this can be done um, with uh, physical measures, for example, sonication or acoustic shearing. So what you get is out of a um, large, um, uh, nucleic acid strand, uh, you get smaller strands, right? Um, and this is a mix. So you have uh, some strands which uh, have uh, your 150 base pairs, but there are longer and smaller fragments. And typically you want to select for um, the fragments around 100, 150 base pairs, so-called size selection. Um, and this is the first time where beat handling comes into play. Um, we will talk about beats a lot during this webinar. So these are small magnetic beats uh, which can um, capture nucleic acids and which will be, which are used during the process of NGS library preparation. 
And um, for the size selection, the first important thing to remember is that the volume ratio from bead solution to sample uh, volume is absolutely crucial um, to get the correct size selected. So it's been depicted here. So you have a depiction of the number of fragments uh, on the y-axis and on the x-axis, you have the size of the fragments. And you can see here, depending on the ratio from bead to DNA, so 0 0.8, 0 0.65 or 0 0.5, you select for different fragments uh, of your uh, fragment, uh, fragmented nucleic acids. Um, and uh, in order to get a good size selection, um, make sure to pick uh, the right volume ratio um, and uh, make sure to uh, have it well mixed, have a homogeneous um, bead solution, and also that you do not have any evaporation of your uh, sample volume uh, or of your bead volume. So the first important parameter which impacts NGS library preparation is bead handling. And as said, we will, we will come back to the bead handling um, later during the course of this webinar. Um, then let's, um, uh, after the fragmentation, uh, if you have the option, it might make sense to do a quick quality control. Um, so the quantification uh, to ensure that you still have the uh, correct input amount. And of course, the qualification as shown to check if you have the right size distribution. Um, if you see that something is off here at that point, um, you can really avoid the effort and the costs for the library preparation. So you basically can start optimization before you open a very expensive NGS library preparation kit. It saves you a lot of costs. Um, and this QC helps you to troubleshoot and optimize your protocol. Uh, Okay, after the fragmentation, we move into um, end repair and A-tailing um, because what you can see here is um, all of those fragments. So there are some fragments with blunt ends, there are some fragments with um, sticky ends, so overhangs at one or, or both sides. And in order to sequence a library, we need blunt ends for all of them. So what happens here is a so-called end repair. Um, all fragments will be filled up so that you have blunt ends at the end. And there will be a so-called A-tailing. There will be an adenine overhang added, and this is then needed uh, later on for the adapter ligation. Uh, uh, in a lot of protocols for NGS kits that uh, you can buy those days, uh, the fragmentation and repair and A-tailing is combined. So this is a so-called combined step. It's then called tagmentation. Um, and this is usually done uh, enzymatically. So uh, you have your um, whole, for example, whole genomic DNA, um, and then with a, a mix of different enzymes, um, there are several things happening uh, simultaneously. So um, you cut this into smaller pieces and you directly do the end repair as well as the attachment of the, of the A overhangs, right? We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Right. Okay. Um, following this, so either tagmentation or end repair and A-tailing, um, you need to attach adapters um, for the sequencing of the DNA fragments. And these adapters are needed to bind your sequences to the flow cells for the actual sequencing. 
for the bridge amplification and also for the uh, start point of sequencing. And they can also serve as an identifier for the sample. So imagine them as some sort of barcode. Um, those adapters um, are usually um, 75 base pairs long. Um, so a successful adapter ligation will show a, a, a size shift uh, compared to the fragmented DNA. So we said that um, you were aiming for 150 base pairs fragments. If you then add two adapters, uh, you add uh, two times 75 base pairs. So you end up with roughly 300 uh, base pairs uh, of a library. Uh, and if you do not see this uh, uh, this size shift, or um, if you see some sort of shoulder, uh, this shows you that something went wrong with the adapter ligation, and you can adjust for that during troubleshooting and optimization. Okay, so, and if we talk about end repair A-tailing adapter ligation, um, so how is that driven? And this is all driven by different enzymes. Uh, and in order for those enzymes to work, you need to ensure that you have the optimal temperature conditions for this. So next to beat handling, another important parameter that uh, impacts the success of uh, NGS library preparation is the temperature incubation. Um, and it, so you have to ensure um, that your sample reaches the optimal temperature in order for the enzymes to function correctly. And this can either be done with a, a thermo mixer um, or thermo block of some sort, or for certain steps uh, in a PCR cycler. Uh, and um, what is a general rule of thumb and uh, important to know, for example, for, uh, for the tegmentation, if you work with a thermo mixer or thermo module, um, so uh, you have the heat transfer from the uh, module to the sample and um, please use high quality uh, heaters uh, like a, a thermo module. So don't go with a, with a water bath. This, um, uh, this often gives, gives you some problems um, besides the contamination risk. Um, and of course, if you are heating up a sample, you have to make sure to use some good sealing, some sort of vapor lock. It can be an oil overlay, but it can also be closed by a foil because you don't want to lose um, any of your sample volume during that. Uh, especially uh, for automation, but also for manual handling, it's, I think it's always important to imagine that if you have your samples, for example, here in a plate, uh, and this, this sample needs to reach 75 degrees, for example, um, the 75 degrees that your, your thermo block or your thermo mixer shows you is a temperature that is reached at the heating plate itself, right? So in between, you sometimes have an adapter and then you have your uh, consumable. So that means that this, this heat um, needs to go through several layers to reach your sample. What you want to have at the end is those 75 degrees in your sample, all right? And in order to make sure that this is really happening, is um, it's important that you ensure a tight fit um, between the module, the adapter, and the consumable. You can imagine that if you have some air gaps in between here, it's a perfect uh, uh, isolator, so you will not reach the temperature in your sample. Um, use good consumables, uh, uh, which have a good heat transfer, but uh, which are also not melting or shifting or bending. Um, and 
Um, what can also help is to uh, add a few degrees uh, for higher temperature steps. So for example, if it's if you need to reach more than 65 degrees, you can add two degrees um, to the to the heat. Um, or you can also end, or you can also add some extra time for those steps. So again, more than 65 degrees, uh, you can add uh, two minutes to the incubation time. So this often helps if you are encountering some problems uh, with one of your incubation steps. Yeah. Um, if we then, uh, after uh, end repair and ligation, and we move into uh, PCR amplification, this is to increase the amount of uh, ad adapter ligated libraries. Um, so with with primers, as you can see, as you can see here, um, that you just have more material in the end to sequence. Um, of course. Um, it's it's important to always use a PCR cycler to do this. It sounds very trivial, um, but uh, I, I have seen um, different approaches uh, to do this. Um, so it's recommended to use a high quality PCR cycler because you don't want to risk your experiment because your your PCR here at the last step is failing, right? Okay, um, so that uh, gu guided us uh, through the whole uh, NGS library preparation protocol. Um, and there is uh, one final quality control step, and that is the quality control step that you should never skip. Uh, it's really crucial to do a quality control here uh, in order to move on, uh, to move into normalization and to move to sequencing. And it's also important that you do um, both quantification and qualification uh, because you don't want to have the uh, costs for sequencing if you already know here at this step uh, that you ended up with a, a, a poor quality uh, library. Um, for quantification, this is usually done by UV-Vis or fluorescence, for example, a qubit. Um, if you want to be very precise, you can use qPCR. That's actually the gold standard, but obviously also a bit more work. Uh, and for uh, qualification, um, some sort of electrophoresis. It can be um, a gel, uh, although this is very tedious to handle. Uh, so most of the labs are nowadays using either bioanalyzer or tape station or a similar uh, system for automated uh, electrophoresis. So, but how to how to identify a good or a bad library. We are coming back. Um, so this is a quality control tool, um, and these are uh, bio, uh, these are uh, tape station traces. Um, and thank you to uh, Agilent Technologies for providing us this, this pictures here. So what you can see here on the x-axis is the size, um, and on the y-axis is the intensity, so the yield. And you can uh, see here, so this is a, a, a very good looking library. So we have two intrinsic markers, lower and upper, and then we have our library signal here um, at around uh, 300 base pairs. It's a very good size distribution. There are no adapter dimers and no bubble peaks. So this is a quote unquote, perfect library to continue and to sequence. Uh, if we take a look at the bad library, um, so here we have a, a good size distribution, um, uh, but uh, we have this, we have no adapter diamonds, but we have this um, so-called bubble peak here. So this is this shoulder. Um, these are usually unspecific longer fragments. It can be um, that you, that there was too much template input or too many PCR cycles. It's not perfect, um, but it can still be sequenced. There is, however, um, the risk 
for a wrong estimation of your library uh, concentration, which can affect your sequencing results. But this is sets more like a, a yellow card, so this is not um, uh, this is not a big problem. Um, uh, a bigger problem looks like this. Um, this is a, a big amount of so-called uh, primer dimers. So um, you can see here the size distribution of the library is okay. Also the yield is okay. Um, but you have this um, very uh, sharp peak at around 150 base pairs. Um, these are so-called adapter dimers. Um, and the problem is that they don't only like to bind to your beads. They also like to bind to the flow cell. And this will negatively affect your sequencing quality. Um, possible causes are that your beat to um, sample volume ratios of um, that your sample volume is lower than expected or your beat volume is too high or that your beat mixing is not correct. This all causes uh, insufficient size selection. And as you can see, it all comes down to beat handling. So I will quickly jump back to the, um, to the beat handling um, and you can uh, you, you can see here um, two, two types of bead handling. So these are insufficiently mixed beads. So you can see two layers. Um, and this is a good mixing um, or perfect mixing. So use high quality mixers uh, with a big radius, um, thermo mixers. Or um, if you see that you have this, this type of bead mixing, uh, implement some tip mixing. Uh, the second important thing when it comes to beads for the handling itself so that you don't have a carryover of beads is to use um, strong magnets with a tight fit, no matter if it is a uh, magnet for tubes, as you can see here, where the magnet is coming from the side, or if this is a plate magnet, as you can see here, um, where you have a ring magnet. So if you have an improper fit, you will always have floating magnetic beads, which will carry over and cause problems in the next steps. If you have a tight fit between your consumable and the magnet, uh, you have a good uh, separation, which then allows for easy pipetting and uh, a, a good um, and clean um, uh, process. All right. Okay. Um, one last thing uh, when it comes to the beads is the bead drying. At some point of the protocol, you have to uh, dry the beads to get rid of uh, remaining washing liquid, so uh, ethanol. Um, so there are uh, basically three um, scenarios. One scenario is that it is uh, too wet, so it's not dried properly. There is still a lot of uh, residual ethanol. This ethanol will interfere with follow-up steps. So ethanol interferes with a lot of enzymes um, and uh, it will cause problems with the next step. Um, the other option is um, that you overdried your beads. Um, the beads are then too dry. They will be uh, brittle. And the problem is that it's very hard to um, elude DNA from those overdried uh, beads. Um, and here in, uh, in the center, you can, of course, see the, the perfect scenario, very little residual ethanol, but the beads are looking good and they are not overdried. So uh, in order to ensure this optimal uh, drying, um, make sure to completely empty your valves, uh, maybe use different tip sizes to do that, uh, determine your best dry time uh, in an optimization step, and under no circumstances, support the drying with heat. This is something that is um, definitely not working well. All right. Uh, so we talked about beat handling. We talked about incubation uh, and temperature. 
Um, but there is one factor uh, which is also uh, has big impact on the success of your NGS experiment, in fact, uh, of every experiment, and this is the quality of uh, pipetting and liquid handling. So um, very quickly, you're probably all familiar with that um, for the pipetting uh, cycle. So if we talk about uh, manual uh, uh, handling, um, then uh, you have the aspiration of your liquid. Um, you, if you want to uh, dispense it again, you have first the dispense step. There's always a little uh, residual volume left. And then you do the so-called blowout that you get your tip completely empty. Um, if we are in an automated scenario, um, it's more or less the same. The only difference is that in between, um, you have this so-called trailing air gap that is generated. So if uh, a system is moving around that you have um, no dripping. Yeah? So what is important when it comes to pipetting, besides a good pipetting technique, uh, I think is the use of um, the proper tip. Uh, if we talk about automation, I always prefer um, transparent tips uh, instead of uh, conductive black tips because you can see what is happening in a tip. So for example, here, um, you can see that there is still a lot of residual volume left in your tip. So probably you don't get enough enzyme or reagent um, into, your, um, into your reaction. That is problematic. Um, and that is a tip which is looking good. So if you are in the optimization protocol, um, uh, take a look or take a careful look um, at of any residual liquids which might stay in the tips. Uh, you probably also have um, spotted a problem here if we talk about NGS. So if, if we talk about tips, always, always, always use filter tips. Yeah, um, This filter is an extra protection, especially for aerosols that are generated. All Most NGS protocols include an amplification step. Um, that means if you have a contamination of your pipette, this contamination will be carried over um, into your actual sample. And let me tell you a story from my time in the lab. There was a, um, a lab uh, which was working with adenovirus, um, and actually all of their pipettes were um, uh, in one room were contaminated with a residual adenoviral um, DNA. So that means when they had to run very delicate um, experiments to detect adenoviral DNA, um, they needed to do this in a completely different lab with a completely different set of pipettes um, because this um, very little traces of DNA at the pipette were enough to spoil their experiments. Yeah, so make sure to use filter tips for an extra layer of protection. If we talk about automated dispensing, um, we also uh, can talk about two different modes. One mode is the so-called pipetting mode. Um, where you uh, take up a certain volume and then uh, release the same amount of volume. Um, this gives you high, uh, high accuracy, um, but it can be rather slow. Um, but the blowout allows you to really um, eject uh, remaining liquid. And of course, you have to, um, you can change the tip uh, between each aspiration step. Uh, in contrast, we have the so-called multi-dispense mode or sequential dispensing. Um, it's faster but less accurate than uh, pipetting mode. That means um, you take up uh, a multitude of your um, dispensing liquid and then you dispense the stepwise. So uh, first dispense, second dispense, third dispense, and then a little bit of um, 
uh, residual liquid, which either goes back to the source or is discarded. Um, and of course, here a tip change between these different um, dispensing steps is not possible. When to use which uh, pipetting technique, I would always use the pipette mode for um, samples or critical enzymes and multi-dispense for buffer. Um, of course, this only applies if you use automated dispensing or electronic pipettes. If you work with mechanical pipettes, you always fall back to the actual pipetting mode uh, unless uh, you uh, are, are using uh, a repeater system. All right, so that is the last parameter which uh, is important for the success of uh, NGS library preparation, and that is um, the pipetting itself. Okay, so I talked a lot about uh, tips and tricks for um, manual process, but I, I mentioned a couple of times that this is also interesting if you uh, automate your NGS protocol. Um, now, very quickly, I want to tell you why it might be beneficial for you to think about automating NGS protocols. So coming back to our beloved depiction of the workflow. Um, so the question is, um, why can you automate those protocols at all? Um, and the reason is that, um, especially here, this the central part, nucleic acid extraction, library preparation, normalization, as well as the quality controls, um, they are usually very standardized and uh, mainly based on, uh, on kits. Uh, and those are processes that can easily be automated. Okay, so it can be automated. So the question is, but why should I do that? Why should I automate it? Um, the first and very obvious answer is throughput. Uh, so if you implement automation, uh, it's much easier for you to increase your throughput. So um, as a person, as a human, um, you, you are maybe capable of handling 8, 16, 24 samples, but there is a limit uh, if it comes to working concentrated. Um, but for a robot, um, they can easily handle 96 or even more samples in a single run uh, without getting tired, um, without running into mistakes. But you might ask yourself, okay, that makes sense. But um, in, in most NGS labs, um, if we talk about non-core labs, um, there are not hundreds of samples every day that need to be processed. So uh, if I have less samples, does it still make sense for me to automate my workflow? Uh, and the answer is, of course, yes. Otherwise, I would not do this motivation here. Um, and the reason is just based on the, um, on the, uh, on the workload that comes with this with this different steps. So we have about 500 pipetting steps, two hours hands-on time for nucleic acid extraction, 2,000 pipetting steps, five hours hands-on time. NGS library preparation can be easily more than five hours. And then uh, also uh, uh, 100 plus steps for the QC and the normalization. And this is tedious. This is very demanding for the operators. You need to stay focused and concentrated for a long time. And of course, if we talk about 2,000 pipetting steps or more, it's also very error prone. So it's very likely that at some point you make a mistake, you forget something, um, you, you, you put the wrong volume to your pipette. Um, it does not need to happen, but it can happen very easily. Uh, and so that means you need to stay razor focused on your uh, experiment on your samples, on your pipetting. Um, and if you give these tasks 
uh, to a robot um, and the robot does the handling, of course, you are free to concentrate on other tasks, which is usually data analysis. Yeah? So the biggest advantage for automation or one of the biggest advantages is that it frees time. It frees time for other things to do. Right. So in a nutshell, when does it sense? Uh, when does it make sense to automate? Um, so uh, one big component we talked about this is the throughput. So if you want to increase your throughput, um, also if you want to have uh, increased accuracy and precision. Um, and I'm not talking about a single experiment, but over the course of several experiments, a robot will usually be more accurate and precise as different operators um, during a manual process. Of course, um, a automated system is basically human error free, um, unless there are some input errors. Um, it gives you uh, uh, additional data integrity and it helps with the, with the documentation. So you don't have to write a, a lab notebook because the, uh, the system is keeping track of what is happening and it adds an extra layer of um, sample and user protection. But for me, the, the most important thing is uh, reproducibility and standardization. Um, so um, if you run a protocol that needs to be, uh, or that needs to run several times uh, in your laboratory, and if you do this in an automated fashion, um, you can be sure that every time the performance is the same, every time the, um, the handling uh, is the same, and also uh, that you get roughly the, 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 the same the same output from your experiments. And this is allow me one product slide. So this is really the only product slide that I'm going to show you here. So for uh, NGS Library Prep, Eppendorf is offering um, several automation systems, our so-called EP motion systems. Um, for systems, uh, uh, we, we can take a look here. Um, so we have two smaller systems, uh, EP Motion 96 and EP Motion 5070. So this so-called beginner automation or um, uh, for the 96, it's a, it's a semi-automated system. So these are so-called, I would call them helper systems because they, they cannot automate the whole workflow, um, but they are perfectly capable of um, supporting you with the most tedious tasks like beep purification or maybe with a qpcr setup um, or filling of plates something like that and then uh, we also have a full solution that these are the larger systems 5073 and 5075 um, and uh, these are two different sizes so this is for a low to medium throughput uh, of ngs library preparation um, and this is for um, uh, medium to, to high throughput of NGS library preparation. So this is really uh, a full solution for this. And the good thing is that um, these are all open systems, so they can not only be used for NGS library preparation, but as said, also for your nucleic acid extraction or for your normalization, as well as other tasks in the lab. All right. Okay, and um, since we have uh, a little more time than expected, uh, I would move on to some examples uh, for NGS. I only brought two examples, so don't be afraid. It's not going to be too much here. Um, one is um, the often talked about uh, microbiome project, so the so-called human microbiome project. It's a very interesting field of research um, those days. So as you all know, um, the, the human um, is host to a myriad of different micro, uh, microbes, um, either on your skin or in your gut or in every part of your body. And those 
microbes very much um, shape uh, different, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, physical um, features like um, digestion, your susceptibility to certain diseases. So uh, over the last yeah, decades, um, it became uh, more and more um, en vogue and more and more interesting uh, to look at the human micro, uh, uh, microbiome. And this can be easily done uh, with next generation sequencing. Um, so there is one option, which, uh, which is um, 16S uh, ribosomal RNA gene profiling. So this allows to detect for um, bacteria and um, archaea. So this is a very um, yeah, specific and pinpointed approach. Um, but this can also be used for uh, so-called um, shotgun approaches. So where you just um, sequence uh, the, the whole, for example, gut uh, microbiota, um, and you can then uh, map uh, metagenomics um, on, on the one side. So um, what kind of microbes uh, are, are present um, uh, to detect uh, functional pathways, um, but you can also uh, do metatranscriptomes where you look at the whole transcriptome of a set or a subset of, of microbes, uh, which allows you to see which, which pathways of those microbes are active. And um, this allows you to, to, to track back and to um, uh, identify things um, that are caused by maybe changes in the microbiome or if you have uh, over-representation of a certain subsets of microbes uh, in a certain area of your body. Um, the second sequencing application is something that we are all uh, very um, yeah, familiar with or that we, we heard of over the last days. It's so-called virus surveillance. Um, that's the example of uh, a coronavirus Omicron. So this is one of the first articles when Omicron appeared from Al Jazeera. So this was in um, late uh, 2021. Um, and you can see here that it was pretty much um, yeah, unknown um, how Omicron looked like. So um, you know that there were 32 uh, mutations, but you didn't know what the virus was doing. So um, how do you identify those mutations? So this is a depiction of um, the coronavirus um, uh, uh, trends. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the proteome, so the coronavirus proteins and how they are encoded. And you can see here the Delta variant of corona um, with the uh, different mutations. So these are those, those lines, uh, the lines of the mutations. Um, if, uh, if, if there is no uh, indication here, um, then this is the so-called wild-type virus. And you can see that and the Delta virus has uh, roughly uh, 10 mutations in their proteins, uh, which, which cause a different behavior, which, which make it um, yeah, more aggressive, so to speak. Um, and then if we look at Omicron, you can see that there are a lot of mutations, so a total of 32. Um, and uh, it's important to identify those mutations because those mutations allow you um, to uh, predict uh, how a virus will behave, uh, or it even helps you to tailor-made a, a vaccine, or if we look into the future, uh, maybe uh, uh, active medication for this virus. Um, and if you if you can see this this widespread of mutations here for the Omicron virus, um, this has been detected uh, with sequencing with next generation sequencing, um, and um, the different virus clades all all over the world are still 
monitored um, by this virus surveillance technique to ideally spot uh, newly arising virus mutants um, before they spread around the world uh, to react quicker than, than the virus can do. Yeah, and with this, I want to finish, uh, and uh, I am. I am. I thank all of you for for sticking with me here um, to the to the end of this talk. Uh, I know it's been uh, heavy stuff, but uh, I, I hope it gave you an insight on NGS and especially uh, how you can uh, improve your NGS workflow. And maybe you can take one or two tips or tricks and implement it into your own workflow. And uh, now I'm very happy to uh, take a few questions. Thank you, Tim. Um, that was a great presentation. Um, so we've got a few questions from the audience already. If anyone else has a question, you can leave that in the Q&A box that's at the bottom of your screen. Um, so the first question I've got for you is, are there any alternative methods to NGS? Yeah, very, very good question. And actually uh, not an easy answer to that, that, that very much depends on the um, on the actual question that you are pursuing. So if it's really de novo sequencing of an of an unknown sequence, an unknown genome, um, there are hardly any ways around NGS. So to a limited extent, you can replace it by Sanger sequencing. Um, if we look at a different approach, for example, so called where you do so-called target sequencing, um, where you look at specific mutations at specific genes, there is um, a limited chance to replace this with a multiplex PCR. Um, if it's transcriptome, to a limited extent, you can replace NGS um, with qPCR, so real-time PCR. And you probably don't have the setup for this, um, but sometimes um, it might also make sense to do proteomics. So instead of looking at the at, at the genome or the transcriptome to look at the proteome. Um, but as you see, there's a lot of different methods and NGS can do all of it. So um, it's it's tough to find a really good alternative. Yeah. Um, and the next question is, uh, how do I know if the kit that I'm using can run on a liquid handler? Yeah, very, also, also very good question. Um, I, I, I thought about that question uh, when it when it popped up uh, in in the chat during the course of the webinar. Um, so I think that the best way is to check at um, manufacturer websites. So um, both NGS um, kit manufacturers like Illumina, um, but also uh, liquid handler manufacturers like like Eppendorf usually have an overview of which methods are available on what system. They then still need to be modified for your um, specific needs and purposes. We uh, at Eppendorf, we have um, a special service called application implementation, where you get a visit from one of our specialists, and then they are setting up um, a specific method on your automation system, Eppendorf automation system. And that's probably the best way to get started. But I will try to um, use the chat and um, post a, a link here. I don't know if, um, if everyone uh, can can see this then. Um, so this is a... Yeah, if you set it to everyone, then everyone yeah, can see it. <laughs> um, let's see if that works. Uh, okay, here we go. Um, that's that's the, um, the method overview from Eppendorf. So you can browse it and you can see what's available on our um, automation system. Thanks, that's really useful. Um, so the next question is, 
is qubit or a picogreen cost effective to quantify a library composed by multiple plates, um, 384 wells? Uh, are there any alternative? Um, yeah, I have to think about it a second. So it's a very, very specific question. Um, so uh, from the two um, options that are described there, I, I would say that probably picogreen is the, the better option, the, um, the, the more cost um, uh, efficient option if combined um, with, a, um, with a plate reader. There is, there is one probably more cost effective method, which is a nano drop. Um, but you will surely not want to go through 384 samples um, using a nano drop. So that's very tedious. Um, and the last option that I could think of is uh, what to do um, qPCR. Um, that's actually very good for quantification, but it's, it's a bit more work to get it started or to directly use the uh, quantification option on your bioanalyzer um, or, or tape station. Um, it is not ideal, but it can be used. Um, the, the, the one important thing that I want to add here is that if you have decided on a, on a certain QC um, workflow, stick to it. So don't change it between experiments because it gets very hard to compare the quality of your libraries then in between different um, uh, isolations. Thank you. I'm sure that was really helpful. Um, next question is about sample preparation. Um, when you're using the enzymatic fragmentation, do you still need to fragment DNA, um, for example, using ultrasonic waves? Uh, yeah, uh, very good, very good question as well. It's a number of really uh, great questions coming in here today. So um, if if the protocol has a, a tagmentation included, so the sort of enzymatic break off of um, uh, uh, longer fragments, um, there is no additional fragmentation needed. So in fact, it might even be a problem if you fragment it first and then digest it again with an enzyme. So um, the, um, usually the kit will tell you. So um, I think most of the Illumina kits out there, which are pretty common, but also other kits, for example, from uh, Kappa uh, Biosystems from Roche, um, they use the tagmentation. Um, it has the advantage that you do not need extra instrumentation like a Covaris. Um, on the other hand, you are a little bit less flexible when it when it comes to the to the fragmentation step because it's already included into um, let's say uh, or, or combined with two more steps. Yeah, but but don't do both. Don't do tagmentation <laughs> and then fragmentation as well. Thank you. Um, the next question is: What are the most common causes for DNA loss during library prep? That again is um, an an interesting question. Um, it's a it depends a bit on the handling, I would guess. So um, it's it's of course a bit of hand waving for me here because um, protocols are are, are very different. Um, I think the the biggest risk to lose um, yeah, um, DNA, so to have a, a reduced yield, is the beat handling. Um, and uh, for example, um, during your washing steps, um, if you don't have a strong magnet, for example, um, you will aspirate beads with your washing solution. So you will lose, you will constantly lose beads. And um, 
the, your target DNA is still attached to those beads. So, um, and if you do this multiple times over the course uh, of the NGS library preparation, I would guess um, that this is probably the most common cause for um, uh, yeah, a low yield. So um, check your pipetting, check if you, if you see that you have this kind of um, uh, brownish rust-like traces uh, mm -hmm. while pipetting, that means you're losing beads. And then the second um, option is um, uh, drying. Um, that can be problematic as mentioned. So if, if the beads are too dry, if they look brittle uh, and cracked, um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a color shift. It's a little bit of an experience thing. Um, then the illusion is, um, is uh, yeah, the illusion efficiency is drastically reduced. Um, and there you lose a lot of DNA to, to the beads. Yeah, that's like, I think are the, the most common causes, but it, it can have different reasons as well. Thanks. Um, and then the last question, um, oh, no, no, more came in. <laughs> We've got, let me just have a quick check. Uh, I'm going to leave um, the question about data analysis for the end because I want to combine it with another question. Um, so I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit. Um, can NAP and NGS library prep be automated sequentially without interruption, or do they need to be split as two independent tasks? So um, on the EP motion, uh, on the EP motion system, um, uh, the, it cannot be combined into one, let's say, very long protocol. Um, it's um, this is due to the to the to the size of the systems um, and and the capacity of the deck. Um, I would guess that if you have a much um, larger liquid handling system, um, there might be an option to combine it. However, um, I would uh, I would not suggest to do it um, because if you do your nucleic acid purification, you will you, you want to do a quality control afterwards right mm -hmm. so imagine something goes wrong um there is very little dna or rna extracted especially rna is tricky and then you directly move on um you you will move with this poor quality input material um into your ngs um, protocol um in in fact i have seen a lot of labs that are even splitting pre and post pcr processing uh, if you have everything on one device it works, it, it depends a bit, but if, if you have um, very delicate critical protocols, it can even be a problem to have um, the um, your, your amplified sample on the same system in the same space as your non-amplified samples. So it's no easy answer to that, but I would definitely not suggest to combine it um, on a single system. Um, and then a quick question is, uh, what is the minimum volume that can be handled by your liquid handling workstations? Ah, yeah, we're diving into tech specs here. Yeah, <laughs> the minimum volume is um, uh, 0.2 microliters, um, but um, that volume uh, can only be uh, effectively handled if we have so-called contact dispensing. So if we mm. dispense directly into another liquid, um, with the so-called yeah, free jet dispensing, um, we can go down to, I think, realistically one microliter. So the EP motion is covering a volume range between um, uh, 0.2 microliter and 1,000 microliter. And that holds okay. true for all the systems. 
that's a good range. Um, and then to end um, on this last question is, um, could you comment on some data analysis tools? And I wanted to um, expand that a little bit um, by also asking you if you could recommend a specific quality control method or tool. Um, yeah, uh, so maybe I start with the quality control um, uh, because that comes first and that's also easier <laughs> to answer for me. Um, the, the quality control, um, I would personally suggest a combination of um, uh, the qubit, um, and uh, uh, this is for the for the for the quantification. So it's important that you do both quantification and qualification of your libraries. So for the quantification, I would suggest um, uh, a qubit. Um, it's a very uh, good system. Um, a, a pico green is, is also an option, as as mentioned um, before. Uh, I, I would say that uh, for quantification, the gold standard is um, qPCR. So there are so-called library quantification kits out there, which are qPCR based. Um, this is if you are really encountering some issues uh, that you over or underestimate your, um, your, your yield, uh, then this might be helpful. Um, for uh, the qualification, so the quality of your libraries, um, uh, as shown, uh, I, I think the best option is to go uh, with a, a, a tape station, um, which is an electrophoresis device. Um, it very clearly shows you um, if you have a yeah, quote unquote good looking library or if you see any problems. If we move to data analysis, the, um, the situation is looking a bit different. Um, honestly, I'm not a, a, a bioinformatic um, expert. Um, there are uh, different, uh, let's say, providers out there. I think um, that the most common one is uh, uh, Illumina um, Base Space, I think it is called, where you can have a subscription for this. Um, this gives you a number of tools to do uh, interpretation on your own of your data. Um, then, um, of course, I, I think that a lot of collabs, they work with their, uh, with their own bioinformatics department. Um, so that was actually the way that I was doing NGS. I was doing the library prep and then it went to, into a sequencing facility and I got the results back. Um, that's probably the most common way. Um, there is um, maybe one um, startup company um, that, that might be interesting um, for, for some of you. It's, they are called um, Big Omics, um, uh, a new starter. So it, it might make sense to take a look at them. They have a special option for, um, for, for academics. Um, and they are specialized on um, uh, uh, transcriptome analysis. Um, so if you do this, it might make sense to uh, take a quick look at them. They're called um, big, big omics, but there are, there are sort of plenty fish in the sea um, and a lot of uh, different data analysis tools and options. Yeah, lots to choose from. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, that brings us to the end of the seminar today. So thank you, Tim, for a very illuminating presentation and discussion. And thanks to Elisa for helping to prepare this presentation. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, Eppendorf. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in today. If you would like to listen to this presentation again, it will be available on demand soon. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Eppendorf and Bitesize Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bitesize Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar, 
or to browse the listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.